think maybe the other door's not open. Good morning. For those of you that haven't been uh, travelling with us, we've been doing Revelation for a little while now, so uh, this is where we've got to. Chapters 12 to 14, so just a small chunk. Um, I don't know if any of you listen to uh, Radio 2 in the afternoon, or any other time for that matter. But uh, in the afternoon, they have um, a ringing about your homework questions, and then some other expert rings in to tell you what the answer is to your homework question. And this week, you'd have thought that it might have been me who rung in. Because as we were driving down to take Joel to his drum lesson, this question came onto the radio on the Simon Mayo show, what does 666 mean in the book of Revelation? So I'm getting my pen and paper out. <laughs> and uh, to be honest, it was a great answer. The person gave a great answer. And I was sitting in the car saying to Mike, I'm saying that, I'm saying that. <laughs> Feeling really proud of myself. <laughs> but when we think about Revelation, 666 and the mark of the beast is the thing that everyone knows about. They might know any, not know anything about what they know about it, but they know that the 666 and the mark of the beast is in Revelation. So after this phone-in, of course, they had to play Iron Maiden, Mark of the Beast, and it somewhat went downhill at that point. Uh, and Mick looked up the words and said, don't play it in church. Uh, <laughs> but what a shame if the key things of the book of Revelation are wrapped up in a love for heavy metal or a certain kind of clothing. But let's not jump ahead of ourselves because uh, you need to bear with me for quite a long time before we get to that stage. And... Uh, this, these chapters that we're doing today, these are the heart of the book of Revelation. This is actually the heart of the book of Revelation. These three chapters are the core of this book, and so we need to get a bit of a grip of them, because they make sense of everything else. So just a few things before we get on to the passage, really. We are in an unseen battle, aren't we? There is a clash of kingdoms. That's what we've been seeing through the book of Revelation. The kingdoms of the earth and the kingdom of God. There is this clash of kingdoms. And this whole book is a symbolic narrative that tells us that the whole of human history is a war of evil forces against God and his church. That's what it all boils down to, even if you don't take away anything else, and I hope you will, that this whole story of history is a war between the evil forces and God and his church, and everything else just finds its place within that. At the end of chapter 11, we read this together. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and within, within his temple was seen the ark of his covenant, and there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunders, an earthquake, and a great hailstorm. And you have this sense right from that point that something awesome and significant is about to occur, and that we should pay attention to what is about to occur in the kingdom of God. And a sign comes, a great and wondrous sign appears in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. A sign of hope, a sign of what is to come, a sign of something significant. But as soon as she appears, the villain also appears. 
Well done. Good effort. We'll try that again, won't we? The villain also appears. <laughs> there's lots of stuff in these previous chapters. And there's more to follow. Lots of negative stuff. Lots of stuff we find difficult to get our heads around about the destruction of the earth and its peoples. But in this moment, we see that behind all of the trouble, a dark secret is revealed. A real problem is identified. The curtain rises on a drama within a drama. The central action that forms the central scene of this book. And so we press on into these next chapters ahead of us. And I hope that as I was reading, you thought... This story has a certain familiarity about it because really what we're doing in this chapter, and just bear in mind that we've said time and again that the timeline, our linear timeline, is not what we're looking at here. We're looking at different uh, visions that uh, communicate different stuff to us at any point throughout history. It's not linear. So this is, if you like, a heavenly perspective on the nativity. I hope that you noticed some of that as we were reading there is a woman. Who is the woman? Is she Israel? Is she Mary, or is that too obvious? Is she Eve, the mother of all living creatures? Is it a representation of the faithful people of God, the priestly kingdom from which the Messiah comes? He is born from that priestly generation, the nation of Israel. We have this woman there, glorious with the sun and the moon and this crown of the 12 stars that represents the 12 tribes and the 12 apostles. There's something about the people of God represented there. And then there is the child. And I love this because it makes me laugh. It says, she gave birth to a son, a male child. Hmm? I kind of think that maybe, trying to make a point here, just in case we haven't noticed, this is a boy, a boy child. And then there's this phrase, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And maybe we don't hear it, but in the minds of the first readers, Psalm 2, verse 9, jumps straight into their minds. That the nations are laughing at the king, and God, sorry, the nations are plotting against the king, and God sits on his throne and he laughs, and he says, I will put my son in charge, and he will rule the nations with a rod of iron, and he won't do it in the way that we expect with violence and oppression, but with grace and mercy and sacrifice. This son, this child, is Jesus. The, day, the dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that he might devour her child the moment it was born. Quite threatening, isn't it, really? You see, there's an attack planned on this child. There has been since the creation of the world. The dragon is there ready to devour the child the moment that he is born. And again, echoes there of the nativity of Jesus and the murder of the firstborn by Herod. All those baby boys under two years old. Herod was out to kill Jesus because Satan is out to destroy him. But there is an escape, isn't there? Her child was snatched up to God and his throne. The whole of Jesus' story is compressed into that one phrase. 
His birth, his life, his death and resurrection and ascension are all compressed. His victory is won through death and resurrection and ascension. He is snatched up to heaven. He is no longer vulnerable to the dragon. Okay, two of you smiled. He is no longer vulnerable to the dragon. There is an escape. There's also a parallel here for the woman as she escapes as well from the dragon, flees into the desert to a place prepared for her by God. The people of Israel who fled from Pharaoh and the Egyptians into the desert. It also reminds you of Jesus' own fleeing into Egypt as a refugee, away from Herod. Reminds me also of Hagar when she bore Abraham a son, and she had to flee into the desert, and she found out that God is the God who sees. God was with her right from the very beginning. And later on, we'll find that the dragon will attack the offspring of the women, and we'll come back to that in a moment. So who is the dragon? Who is the dragon? Well, in the Old Testament, they have certain images for him, Leviathan and Behemoth, some good names there, the sea monster, the ancient serpent. In the New Testament, we know him better, Satan, the accuser, the deceiver, the father of lies, and also the angel of light. A term that often people think comes from the book of Revelation, which relates to the devil, is Antichrist, but actually it doesn't. Antichrist features in 1 and 2 John, not in the book of Revelation. And in 2 Thessalonians, it talks about the man of lawlessness, who is also something like the Antichrist. We think of anti meaning against, and clearly he is against. But anti here means in the place of, in the place of Christ. Anything, anyone who puts themselves in the place of Christ let's take a moment to think about who or what is the Antichrist, because I thought that I probably needed to touch on this. Are you ready? If you Google it, and clearly we wouldn't choose any other options, Ian, you come up with around four million sites, so that'll keep you occupied for a little while. Some of the, the recent people that have come up are George W. Bush, David Hasselhoff, <laughs> Bill Gates, Vladimir Putin and Marilyn Manson. Well, at least that kind of makes sense. A movement or idea or personality that sets itself up in opposition to Christ. At the time when this was written, people were talking about the Roman emperors, Caligula, Nero and Domitian, some of the most violent and destructive, or even a spirit of heresy within the church or Rome itself. After Constantine, when Rome became Christianized, they couldn't use that as the Antichrist anymore, so they moved on to the Goths and the Huns and the Tartars. The Orthodox Church became the Antichrist for the Roman Catholic Church for a while. Respective popes have variously been the Antichrist and probably still are in certain people's minds. The Roman Catholic Church, after the Reformation, was the Antichrist. Nietzsche wanted to be the Antichrist. <laughs> he claimed that he was the Antichrist. Even John Wesley gained the title of Antichrist. Napoleon, Stalin, Mussolini, Hitler, even Rasputin. And more recently, the internet. WWW. The League of Nations and the United Nations, the European Union. 
Gorbachev, Clinton, and the ecumenical movement. Take your choice. Who is the Antichrist? You know, anyone, any philosophy, any institution that is in opposition to Christ and puts itself in his place. That is what we're talking about. That is what we're talking about. After the child was caught up to heaven and the woman fled, it says that there was war in heaven. And in that war, a decisive victory was won. And the devil was thrown out of heaven and he takes a third of the stars with him. A third of the angels fall with him to the earth. And both Isaiah and Jesus in Luke talk about seeing Satan fall like lightning to the earth. Two groups of people are responsible for this. The first is Michael and his angels who fight against the dragon and are stronger than a dragon and they hurl the dragon, Satan, to earth. The angels of God win over the angels of the angel of light. But the other people are the martyrs. In verse 11 it says, They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. It is both and. There is a heavenly battle and a heavenly reality and a heavenly war. And that has been won in heaven. And there is also the earthly reality. Those who follow Jesus, who endure, who suffer and die. But who overcome by the blood of Jesus, the seal of the Lamb of God. And the word of their testimony. The story and truth of the gospel and what God has done for them. Both are true. At any given point, both are true. It's not just about heaven and not about us on earth. It is not just about us on earth, praise God, and not about heaven. It is both those truths. And in verse 13, the dragon isn't very happy. The woman flees. She's given eagle wings, another reference back to the people of Israel running from Pharaoh. Supernatural strength and aid to give, get her to the desert. The dragon spews out water like a river to try and overwhelm her, but creation is on her side, and the earth splits in two, and the water pours down into the earth, and she is saved. And he cannot get the child, and he cannot get the woman. So he goes after her offspring. Who are her offspring? Who are her offspring? Okay. We are. We are. So we are no longer spectators on this comic strip story. We are participators in it. This dragon, he is pursuing us. All those who follow Jesus and know him. Verse 17 then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring, those who obey God's commandments and hold on to the testimony of Jesus. From then until now and until Christ comes back again, he is on our case. I want us just to go sideways for a moment because I think it's important perhaps to say these things. Although Satan appears powerful, and is powerful, the plans of God cannot be thwarted. 
It's really important that we grasp that. Throughout the story of God's people, Satan has tried to overthrow God's plans and God's people. We think of Moses and the people of Israel. We think of Jesus himself at his birth. We think of Good Friday and he was nailed to a cross and put in a tomb. On every occasion, God's plans overcame the plans of the evil one. That was true then and it is true now. Whether it's in the history or it's in the Church of China or in other places around the world where Satan is on the rampage against the Church of Jesus Christ, God's plans will not be thwarted ever. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. It may look like it is, but it isn't. It's against the principalities and powers of the heavenly realms, Ephesians chapter 6. We overcome not by fighting harder, not even necessarily by being stronger. We overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. Jesus has done it already for us. The Lamb wins. He's won. Thank you. He's done it. His blood has overcome for us by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. A guy called William Cooper wrote this. Satan trembles when he sees the weakest saint upon his knees. It is not our strength, confidence, even courage necessarily. It's the fact that we hold on to the power of Jesus Christ that has already done it for us. And we hold on. And Satan is restless and so full of fury because he knows his time is short. I don't know if you noticed, I didn't read the whole thing. We have 1260 days, we have a time, times, and half a time, and then we have three and a half years later on. They're all the same time. They all mean the same time. They all mean a limited period of time. Satan is like this because he knows his time is limited. It may not feel very limited to us, but it's limited to him. There will be a day and a time when God will say, enough, the end. His time is limited. So, are you still with me? The dragon is standing on the shore. I think he's a bit disappointed and frustrated. He's, he's got all these plans and, and so far none of them have worked. Everything seems stacked against him. He stands on the shore. He has failed to destroy the church, so he needs to come up with another plan. He stands on the shore of the sea because in Hebrew understanding and Greek, the sea was the place of chaos, the place of darkness, the place of monsters, the place from which all your nightmares came to pass. He is standing on the shore of the sea and out of the sea comes a monster. Satan attempts to seduce the church. He has two strategies. One is to discourage them from obeying God. And the other is to disillusion them about their faith. I don't think his strategy has changed terribly much over the years. He still aims to discourage us from obedience to God and he still aims to disillusion us about our faith in Jesus Christ. This beast comes from the sea. And we need to understand something of the background in Daniel chapter 7. I don't have loads of time to look into this, but Daniel has a vision of four beasts. One is like a lion, the other like a bear, the other like a leopard, and the other's just kind of horrible <laughs> and has ten horns. And this beast that John sees in Revelation 
is a combination of all those. What Daniel sees is the empires that will come and go. Babylon, the Medo-Persians, Greek, and Romans. What John sees is a combination of every empire, every mindset, every ideology and paradigm, be it Babylon or Rome or nationalism or materialism or capitalism or communism. And we see these things and they rise and they fall and they rise and they fall and they rise and they fall. This is a symbol of the ultimate power. It is something terrible. But you know what? There's also something kind of bizarre, like a joke about it. It's like a patchwork of all these animals. Like, I'll have a bit of that and that and that, and I'll glue them all together. And when you look at pictures on the internet, they're really bizarre, most of them. Because it's, well, it's really bizarre, isn't it? It's terrifying, but also strange. It's the anti-God state that derives its power from the dragon. The beast is related to the Roman Empire with its ten emperors. It bears a mortal wound that seems to have healed. And for John in his day, they might well have understood that it was talking about Emperor Nero. When he died in AD 68, that next 12-month period was very fragile and unstable for the Roman Empire. And four would-be emperors came, Galba, Otho, Vitellius, and eventually Vespasian. And Vespasian stopped, and he stayed, and he had power. And his son was Titus, who later on also became emperor. Titus took his legions to Israel, and when they were there, they burned down the temple in Jerusalem. And it seemed that the wound of the Roman Empire had been healed. And there were rumors, as there always are, that Nero had staged a comeback. He had come back to life in the person of Vespasian. The monster claimed worship. He claimed worship. He demanded that everyone would worship him. He was proud and he blasphemed. And he demanded that everyone would worship him and the dragon behind his power. And John says in verse 9, if anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity he will go. If anyone is to be killed with a sword, with a sword he will be killed. There's no messing around here. There's no pretending that this is not going to be very tough and challenging for the church of God. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of the saints. This Christian faith that we hold to is deadly serious. It's deadly serious. It may cost everything. And then another beast came. The beast from the earth. He had two horns like a lamb, but he spoke like a dragon. He is, if you like, the minister for propaganda, like Goebbels to Hitler. He goes around, he persuades everybody that what the beast from the sea is saying is true and that everyone must bow down and worship him. It's a parody, isn't it? He looks like a lamb, but he speaks like a dragon. 
He isn't the lamb. He just looks like the lamb. And a parody is what you get when someone produces a fake which looks real but isn't. Sometimes it's just comic, but sometimes it has an intent to deceive. And if you deceive enough people enough of the time, then your parody becomes the new reality. Because people can't remember what the truth is anymore. They can't remember. And my word, we decided to do this back in May. And it feels to me like our whole world has gone on some kind of parody expedition since then. That this is about fake truth. The truth is in Revelation 4 and 5, that God is on the throne. And that the Lamb, the Lamb of God, is the only one worthy of our worship. The only one worthy to open the seals. The only one that's going to change stuff. The parody is that the first beast, representing Western Turkey under the Roman Empire, takes his authority from the dragon. This is about a world ruler, world system, the big picture, if you like. And the second beast is like it, but subordinate, working at a local level, insisting that everyone should worship the beast. You know, at that time in every city, people are vying to build a new temple to the emperor, to prove that they were worshipping the emperor, to get their status up. That's why Jesus says, when he writes the church in Pergamon, it's your, you've got a temple there. It's the place where Satan has his home. Satan and the first beast and the second beast. Fake truth. Alternative facts. How can you have an alternative fact? Even this morning, listening to the radio, they were having a phone-in on alternative ways to understand the seven deadly sins. So they weren't quite as deadly anymore. Fake truth. A fake lamb, looks like a lamb, speaks like a dragon. A fake resurrection, he, the wound seems to have healed, but, but it hasn't really, he hasn't really died and been resurrected. Fake tricks. It says here, because of the signs he was given power to do on behalf of the first beef, beast, he deceived the inhabitants of the earth. He ordered them to set up an image in honor of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. He was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast so that it could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. And there is evidence, documented evidence, that at that time, statues would do stuff. They would move, they would breathe, they would weep, they would speak, either something supernatural or something created in order that people would believe. We're quite gullible, aren't we? To worship or not to worship, because everyone needed to bow down and worship. And so here we are, the mark of the beast. The mark of the beast. He also forced everyone, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on his right hand or on his forehead so that no one could buy or sell unless he had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of his name. This calls for wisdom. If anyone has insight, let him calculate the number of the beast, for it is a man's number. His number is 666. So what does it mean to John? Well, there was a formal requirement here 
If you didn't have a mark on your hand or your forehead, then you couldn't buy or sell or trade. You weren't allowed in the market to trade. So we get all kind of freaked out, but actually it's not particularly freaky. You had a mark on you. If you had the mark, you could trade in the market. If you didn't have a mark, you couldn't trade in the market. So you became poor. Unless you offered sacrifices, you weren't allowed to trade in the market. These were various marks or visible signs. If you took the coin of the day, on that coin, as long with the emperor's image, were the words, son of God. Because the emperor claimed that he was the son of God. Would you pay with something that said son of God on it? I'll leave you to think about that. It was the mark of the beast, was an actual mark that stopped you from participating in society in the same way as everybody else. So what's the thing about the 666 and all that? Well, it's a cryptogram initially. Letters and numbers are the same thing in a number of different languages, including Hebrew and Greek. So like A equals 1, B equals 2, etc. So if you took the name Nero Kaiser and then you did the maths, it worked out as 666 in Greek and Hebrew. If you go to Pompeii today, you can see on the walls there, I love her who is 545. It's not because the person who loves you doesn't really like you very much, doesn't know your name. It was a cryptogram, a way of communicating something in code. But also, we've talked, haven't we, a lot about this numbers, the symbol of numbers. So seven is perfection. It's about God. It's about wholeness. So six is about imperfection and unholiness. It's the parody. 777 is, if you like, the name of God. 666 is the name of anti-God, anti-Christ. He is blasphemous. He is dangerous. He is a copy, a poor copy of the real thing. I don't know if you've noticed, but here we have the unholy trinity. The dragon, the first beast from the sea, and the second beast from the earth. This whole thing is a parody, a copy, a fake of the truth that we know. So what does it mean for us? Thankfully, I'm running out of time, so I won't be able to talk about it for very long. <laughs> I mean, I was a teenager when this was really, really fun. <laughs> and loads of people were talking about it all of the time. So um, when barcodes came in, oh, my word, was that exciting. Because you couldn't read the barcode, could you? So it could be the number of the beast, and you wouldn't know. And so you shouldn't buy anything that had a barcode on it. <laughs> be a bit hungry by now if that was the case. Or, or is it tattoos? Or is it the fact that my children buy their school meals with a fingerprint coding? Oh, that's a bit worrying, isn't it? What, what are we talking about here? It's a symbol, isn't it? A symbol for some very tough choices. Is it okay to sacrifice meat in the temple? Paul talks about that quite a lot, doesn't he? We did that when we did 1 Corinthians, running out of hard books to do. 
Would it be okay to set up your market stall on the side of the road at a religious festival worshipping the emperor? Is that okay? Would it be okay to buy steak from the butchers when you knew it had been sacrificed in the temple? Is it okay to have your investments in a bank that has investments in places where they exploit their workers? Is it okay to buy goods from a company which exploits our rivers and seas and wildlife? Is it okay to buy a paper that damns Christian faith and misrepresents us because you want to read the sports news? How do you work this out? If you're in a nation which is pretty anti-Christian and you're expected to sign a declaration of agreement with the government before you can have a university place, what would you do? It's really hard, isn't it? It's really hard and I guess every situation is different and we face each situation, but we need discernment on the one hand and courage on the other. Discernment because we can get ourselves in the right pickle and ridiculousness with it all. And courage because sometimes we have to make tough calls that will cost us economically, in terms of our family, maybe in terms of our very lives. So we need both. We need both. I just uh, want to finish with a few things which will be brief. Because <laughs> this destructive, unholy trinity is matched by three visions that reveal what's going on behind the scenes. Do you remember we've said a number of times now that this is all happening at the same time, concurrently? So there's a vision here, and there's another one here, and there's another one over here. So we've been looking over here at the dragon and the beasts, but at the same time, then I looked, and there before me was the Lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard the sound from heaven like the roar of rushing waters and like a loud peal of thunder. The sound I heard was like that of harpists playing their harps, and they sung a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. These are those who did not defile themselves with women, for they kept themselves pure. They follow the Lamb wherever he goes. Isn't that just, you know, you've been here in all this dark place, and you turn around, and there's this stunning image of the Lamb on Mount Zion, which itself is significant, leading worship. Leading worship. It's just beautiful. And this 144,000 is a representative number, isn't it? It's the completeness of the people of God who followed the Lamb on this path of victory through sacrifice, even death. He is the King. He is surrounded by his elite warriors. It talks about them being pure and undefiled. Celibate would be another word. Referencing back to Deuteronomy where those soldiers going into war kept themselves celibate. This is a picture of the perfect, prepared people of God 
permanently ready for the battle. They are permanently ready for the battle because they are worshipping the Lamb. I just think that's brilliant. I do. (laughs) And I love this quote. In a world where political ideologies clash with the interests of Christ's kingdom, it might seem strange that Christians should consider their first focus the worship of God. Hear this. If worship is not a waste of time for the Lamb, it cannot be for us. What are we doing? Singing songs? Yeah. Praying a few prayers. Some of us are more expressive than others. Some of us should be more expressive than we are. Worshipping the Lamb. Looking at Him. You know, when all this rubbish is going on here, the best way to discern what should I and should I not do is to worship the Lamb, to look to him. We are not sealed with the mark of the beast, and we don't need to get ourselves all freaked out about that. We are sealed with the mark of the Lamb. His name is written on us. You know, I'm going to stop there, because that's a good place.